This episode of See Here is brought to you by the boy who saw an actual woman's breast. It's the first episode of See Here for the Year. This is episode 48. Uh, my name's Morris, and joining me, as they do on this wonderful podcast, is Tim Bodysuit Merrill. Howdy. Mr. Bernard Blueberry Pirate Stickwell. Good evening. And joining us from the projection booth, a real live podcaster, Professor Mike White. It's my birthday. For episode 48, we are going to be discussing Corey Maccabee's 2001 feature debut. And I think it's no coincidence that this film came out in 2001. More on that later. The film is The American Astronaut. This is Mike's request pick for 2017. And true to form, we're getting ran to it in 2018. So we're going to go to a quick break. Listen to the trailer. Uh, so while we go to the break, you go grab yourself a Hertz donut and we'll be back to talk about The American Astronaut. Guess who this is? The boy who actually saw a woman's breast. He's a birthday boy. Kills without reason. You ready, cat? Hey! And we're back. Welcome to the show. If this is your first time listening to See Here, the idea behind this show is we discuss films that have a music-related plot or involves musicians of some sort. This is more of a musical rather than a music-related film, but we've done that a few times before and we're going to have a lot of fun with this. The film is The American Astronaut. It's directed and written by Corey Maccabee. Stars Corey Maccabee in the main role of Samuel Curtis. Rocco Sisto as the villain Professor Hess. Greg... Russell Cook as the boy who actually saw a woman's breast, and James Ransone as Bodysuit. We will explain who these characters are in due course. The film came out in 2001. The IMDb description of this film is pretty shit, I must admit. Samuel Curtis, an interplanetary trader, sets forth through a rustic and remote solar system, unaware that his old friend Professor Hess is out to kill him. That's pretty shit, actually. Mike, this film was your request, and I know that you've discussed this film in the early days of the projection booth which i avoided to listen i wanted to get something fresh from you so i want to know what were your original thoughts on the film and has anything changed in the intervening years since uh you went and rewatched this for uh, our show 
I've only fallen more in love with this movie over the years, and now it's it's like a comfort food for me. It's one of those watches where I'm just like, oh, I like this part. Oh, I like this part too. <laughs> and the first time I saw it, I mean, I really couldn't even catch my breath until probably about a half an hour in. It starts off slightly slow, but then once it gets going and once we get to the bar on the asteroid on series, it just goes, goes, goes. And then I'm just with this movie from there on out. Tim, you also discussed this as a uh, special bonus episode of the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Eric. What can you recall? What were your thoughts initially? And just brief summary, how you feel about it now compared to how you uh, first thought about it when you first saw it. There's two things that I have always kind of detested with film where in the sense that there's two terms. You know, it's like if something's weird, it's like Lynch or it's like ding, ding, ding on acid. And I, I and I just can't stand either one of the two terms because it, it doesn't really pay any credit to the artists and and the films that they're putting out there and this is a film that you know initially when you see it it draws you in it kind of demands you to accept its frame of reference you know Mm. and i think the first time kind of like whiskey you know the first time you 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 put it down it's kind of like whoa like what's going on here you know but after repeated viewings like mike saying you settle into it and you get what they're doing and it just flows this is a kind of uh thing that if i was to watch american astronaut every day i wouldn't appreciate it as much truth be told but when i pull it out every once in a while and put it on i enjoy it immensely and it's only because like i say it's some type of kind of like a delicacy to me where uh you're not going to want to have it every day but when you want to have it you can if that makes any sense yeah completely bernie was this a first time watch for you not only was it a first time watch i'll be completely honest i didn't even know about this film i'd never even heard of it before particularly in the uh the internet age when all this info is at our fingertips. It's it's so rare to actually come across a film you've not even heard about or heard something about. So this was a first-time watch. Yeah. Tim's uh, analogy about the shot of whiskey that rings very true so uh, yeah this this was a uh, an experience definitely the film actually received a cinema run here in Melbourne maybe about five years ago at um, our Australian Centre for the Moving Image aka Acme and I think it might have run for a month every day for a month so it must have done fairly well and I can't say what it was why I didn't bother to go see it then I didn't really know anything about it I know that you had gone and spoken about it on the GGTMC Tim but yeah. I really had no other sort of point of reference at the time. So, you know, kudos, thanks to you, Mike, for requesting that we cover this. And was expecting, I'd kept hearing, okay, yeah, this is going to be a strange film. And yeah, I'd completely see your point there, Tim, that saying it's like Lynch does it no justice. I will say, I think that visually, only in terms of, say, the black and white photography and the high use of uh, light and contrast, probably that's as close as it gets to something like a race ahead, but certainly nothing else for me me but going in and you know hearing this stuff about it being a sci-fi western rock musical mashup made me sort of think okay well is this going to be so far pretentiously up his own ass or is it going to be entertaining and when i came out of it i thought it's the broad story it it had a narrative and that's one thing i wasn't sure that i was going to get was it going to be sort of going all over the place like a film like head which i adore or is it going to be a narrative and 
when I came out of it, I thought, okay, so really, it's the broad story that's pretty straight ahead. You, you have a gun for hire who has to travel from one place to another place, making deliveries and pickups along the way, and it sort of becomes, in a way, a buddy film. He has a psychotic nemesis behind him working on you know his own code of ethics to justify his behavior. And like in any musical, people burst into song. So in that regard, it's you know, a fairly straight ahead sort of story, but the devil is in the details. And that's what makes it, I don't want to use the word quirky because that's a bullshit word, but the peculiarities of the film are in the detail, but it's what I find absolutely I don't, well, enchanting such an old-fashioned word, but there was a lot about this film that I found really delightful and enchanting. I just, yeah, absolutely adored it. Hey, is it just me or do my balls itch? I think it's you. Good. For a minute, I thought my balls itch. When you talk about the narrative, in a way, it's almost like a Dashiell Hammett story. You got this protagonist on this kind of, you know, mission to get from point A to point B with the guy on his tail and every, and all the characters in between. Like like I'm saying, it's almost like kind of like a Maltese Falcon kind of really abstract. I get the feeling every time I watch this, it just kind of reminds me of almost like a, like a 50s kind of hard-boiled crime story that's been really, really diluted to the point of just being abstract. Extract. But I just what I get from it. Now that you sort of mentioned that, I hadn't made the dash or hammer or hard-boiled connection, you know, because I mean, a lot of the time you're sort of thinking of Samuel Curtis and the Blueberry Pirate as more the protagonists in your traditional Western. But I guess Samuel Curtis has a sense of the world weariness that you might get from the hard-boiled detective. I love that there's the, that um, moment where they just lay out, here's everything that's going to happen in the plot. You know, the Blueberry right. Pirate is with Sam Curtis, and he's just like, do this, you're going to do this, you're going to do this. And Sam even, like, repeats it back. And it's just like, yeah, that's the movie right there. That's everything that's going to happen in the movie. Uh But as you said, the devil's in the details. It was round and soft. Now go back to work. The opening of the film has a narrative. It's setting up the state of the planets and where Ceres fits in and these asteroids. And then we realize that it's not a narrator. It's a character in the film, the villain of the piece, Professor Hess. And he has a vested interest in the story that's going to come out. And he's not necessarily delivering this story. He's not completely objective, as we're soon going to find out. And I love how he... In one way, he breaks the fourth wall, but he's broken the fourth wall in retrospect, if that makes any sense. You know, he, we, see uh-huh. him, we see him talk to the camera, but he knows how the story has ended up as well. Right. So I thought that was um, a, a two, really interesting use of, um, of character there. Two things about Professor Hess. Number one, you know, with the beginning of that, as you're saying, it totally kind of reminded me of uh, Rocky Horror at the beginning. Mm. You know, the way that they have the narrator in Rocky Horror, the old man, you know, sitting in the wheelchair and, and all that. It, it kind of reminded me of that. And two, the character has himself, the actor. I don't know about you guys, but he totally, totally, totally reminded me from the get-go, from the first time I saw the film, of Tim Carey. Tim I can Tim see Carey. that. Yeah, yeah. 
Absolutely. And the film itself, even the way it's shot and just how it's herky jerky and the way it works totally reminds me of one of my favorite films that Carrie ever did was a film called The World's Greatest Sinner. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it's just a lot of this film kind of I see there's kind of a parallel to that. And I'm not saying Maccabee riffed on The World's Greatest Sinner. I'm just saying when you see that film and you see this, you can say like, wow, like I get that the same kind of feeling and the same type of vibe with the with the photography in it. I think this uh, this film's very much like World's Greatest Sinner. It's just got that completely handmade. Yeah. We all built the sets. We all did uh-huh. everything ourselves. Low budget, a creative kind of feel to it, hasn't it? So th- I think that's a, a totally valid comparison you're making not, there. Not to mention the dancing. Uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, those amazing that this is a space opera and that we get all of these shots of the quote-unquote spaceships and it's basically like a train in space and it's all with still frames i love that use of the still images oh yeah even the beginning the the part that you were talking about more is with just like here's the universe here's the solar system here's Ceres, here's the asteroids and just all still images and (laughs) just kind of fading from one to another do you know it reminded me a little bit of guy madden's film careful yes that one Mm -hmm. even though that was all kind of done in silhouette and paper cuttings and so on there's just again something about that homemade vibe and and even though it wasn't animated mm -hmm. with the way you're used the way that mike like you're saying he used the stills it also kind of reminded me of those the, the early uh malay films Yes, you know, trip to the moon and that kind of thing. You know, yeah, yeah. I kind of got, I got a little bit of a vibe of that too. It's really effective, though. I mean, for budgetary reasons, like it's just brilliant the way they do it. Two films came to mind in terms of those paintings that they used. Obviously, like in this film, because Corey Maccabee wasn't working with a Hollywood budget, so there were budgetary restraints that he had, and that's why he did those shots of the motion of of the spaceship or the space truck, as it were, to compensate the right. I'm not going to try to do any bullshit CGI. I'm just going to show these pictures, and that will convey something. But he made something really stylistically valid with it. It just happened to come out that way, but based on budget restraints. I was thinking of a couple of films, one of them which you possibly have seen, Mike, both Australian. One's called The Tracker by uh, Rolf Tahir and, mm-hmm. uh, and another film, Look Both Ways by a, a local director, Sarah Watt, who's sadly no longer with us. And in both of those films, they used paintings as a replacement for violence. So whenever there's a killing or, or there was either real or imaginary in both of those films, they'd replace the live action with a series of paintings. And that was a a deliberate stylistic device. But what I thought was interesting here is the use of drawings of the motion of the space truck, as I'm going to call it from now on, was more a budgetary limitation, but it ended up being a very valid stylistic device, I think, for this film, and really just sort of added perfectly to the mood of the film. Gentlemen, I give you the boy who actually saw a woman's breast. Now, whilst I didn't go back to listen to either the projection booth or the GGTMC discussion of the podcast because I wanted our discussion to be something fresh and I didn't sort of want to go in knowing exactly what your thoughts were in advance of recording this, but I did find 
that I listened to an episode of another podcast which had discussed and I, I found I listened to the first five minutes and then after that I thought bullshit you get no more of my time it was absolutely the laziest thinking the three hosts started out saying well this is the weirdest stupidest film that we've ever seen and I thought alright okay I'm not on the same boat as you but I'm going to listen to see where you go with this and then when one of the hosts said well first of all I'm not on board with musicals because face it no one does that in real life I thought right delete okay now I've gone and discussed on this program before my problem with anyone who says I don't like musicals because that's not what happens in real life it's a film a film establishes its own rules it establishes its own universe and when the rules of that universe says hey, you can sing in this universe, then that's fine because really there are so many inconsistencies in non-musical films. You know, someone getting punched repeatedly in the face and not having to go to hospital for brain damage. Or, you know, think of any other number of, you know, tropes of, say, action films or, or Western films that just didn't happen in real life, but no one seems to have a problem with that. So that sort of lazy thinking really bothered me. Did you appreciate from the get-go the universe that this establishes? Was Corey McAbee consistent within the rules that he established for his universe? Yeah, I totally think that he was. And that's the thing that I like about it is the word that you're using is universe is because this feels very thought out and it feels like there are there are rules to this universe that we have all of these men mining things on Jupiter, that we have all these women over on Venus just hanging out, you know, wearing the big antebellum dresses and all this. I mean, it feels like all of these things belong. And I'm always curious, like, what it would look like once he gets back to Earth. But I like that he doesn't end it that way, that we are left hanging. But all of these things, everything makes sense. There's nothing where, like, even the silver miners coming out, it's just like, okay, yeah, th this is happening. There's no moment that takes me out of this universe. And if anything, it's like I want to be back in that universe. And I think, you know, somewhat, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit later, but I think some of Stingray Sam feels like it's set in this universe a little bit, like it could 100%. exist around there. Yep. But yeah, like I will, I would gladly go back to this universe and, and, and hang out because it just feels authentic. It feels like the bar on series has been around for a long damn time. Oh yeah. Right. My daughter Amelia was watching the film with me and she watched Stingray Sam as well. And she said, well, hang on, is Stingray Sam, Sam Curtis from the American astronaut? And right. it hadn't even occurred to me, but I thought, you know what? It really feasibly could be. He takes the boy who actually saw a woman's breast back to earth. Times are not good. He goes back to driving around the universe, lands a job as a land singer in a bar on Mars and uh, I thought it's completely feasible to me. You're talking about he creates this universe and you know is it easy enough to accept well we've already been there before all of us because if you really think about it he's just basically presenting a story of the frontier he's presenting a story of the west you really look at you know where you had all the miners in the saloon and you know the gold rush and then you've got all the southern bells and there's a real familiarity to it all of it and at the same time it's still absurd you really think about it like this is something that i've had an argument with a friend about not to go off on a, on a bit of a tangent but when you see uh jim jarmusch's film dead man mm. 
and when Johnny Depp's walking down the main drag and you see, you know, like Iggy Pop in the dress or Gibby Haynes, you know, like acting like a complete animal on the in the side of an alley. That's the way it was. I mean, when when you were when you were out there on the fringe and there was not a lot of women around and there was not, you know, you start to go out of your mind and you start to really do things or see things that you wouldn't normally see. Your mind can only imagine how far the, you know, like uh, depravity, you know, or, or the strangeness would go. So, I mean, when you when you see them hit this bar and these guys are out there boogieing and, and you know, and they're laughing at sh- shit that's not funny and and they're, di- you know, and they're just totally unhinged, you know, it, it's all, it almost seems for a second that there's going to be some type of bloody murder because everybody's all on edge. It just seems like they're, they're completely bored, but they're completely ready to kill all at the same time, you know. When Mr. Stevenson was eight years old, he asked another little boy if he would like a Hertz donut. The other boy said yes. So he hit him on the arm and he said, Hertz donut. Strong homoerotic undercurrent yeah. in oh, that yeah, scene yeah, as yeah. well, isn't yeah, there? Very absolutely, strong. absolutely. Yeah. But I'm but I'm saying that was the frontier, man. When you had a sure, bunch yeah, of guy, yeah. guys out in the saloon by themselves for a long period of time in isolation, well, what are you going to do? You know, no coincidence. They came up with the term cowpoke. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, you remember that uh, moment when Sam Curtis and the boy who actually saw a woman's breast end up on that barn, that space barn, and they're speaking to one of the silver miners, and he starts doing his little musical narrative and he says, well, you know, we were up here and back in those days we didn't know what we were doing and some of us just started a humping and a humping and yeah. we, we, yeah, didn't, yeah. we didn't really yeah. know what we were doing, did we? Yeah, we did. Uh, so. uh, yeah, we did. Yes, yeah, we, we did. did. Yeah, <laughs> we did. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like it, uh, that frontier isolation. So we should probably put a little bit of sense there for the listener out there who maybe hasn't seen. Really reiterate, this film is basically a road movie. Uh, our main character, uh, Samuel Curtis, is going through the university. He has to do a series of deliveries before he can acquire some level of wealth. He takes a cat. Did you bring the cat? Yeah, I got him. His name's Monkey Puss. That he calls Monkey Puss to this bar on series. And then he, he gets in exchange a case. It's a girl. It's a real live girl. Or a cloning real live girl. And he's going to take that to Jupiter. He's going to take that to a mining colony where he's going to exchange it for the boy who actually saw a woman's breasts. And he's going to take the boy who actually saw a woman's breast to Venus to populate the southern bells there. And I just found that really amazing that that was the look that they went for in Venus, the southern bells, uh, something like out of a Tennessee Williams play. Yeah. It's perfect though, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And then he's going to um, get a dead man from there, which he's going to return to his family on Earth and uh, gain substantial reward for having done that. It sort of reminded me of a MASH episode where Hawkeye had taken a new pair of boots and he had to exchange it for a series of things. Oh my God, thank you. Thank you for making that reference. In a way,
say it is a series of set pieces, but it does work cohesively as this whole film. And I haven't sort of mentioned in that description there about Professor Hess, who's tailing Sam Curtis. And we never really know what his relationship was to Samuel Curtis. And there's uh, an interesting bit in the film where we think we're going to get that description of how Sam Curtis and Professor Hess are linked. But it sort of gets a montage of Sam Curtis talking to the boy who actually saw a woman's breast with music in the background from the Billy Nair show, the, the band that provides the music for this film. Right. And they're just sort of laughing and looks of shock, like, oh, he actually did that, really. So we never really know what the relationship was. And I think for the purposes of this film, we don't really need to know. No, but I, I think in a weird way, after watching this a couple of times, and it's no spoiler or anything, but I actually think that Professor Hess represents Sam's other side he's almost like sam like sam's uh, negative double mm. where, where i think i think sam's you know like the more kind of reasonable or the more mellow the more sedate side and then hess is his erratic impulsive almost almost like his id there's a one point where the boy says to sam do you really like this guy and he goes yeah to me, it's almost like he's his necessary evil. He, he's kind of like he's either attached at the hip. It's just the other side of Sam that's just kind of like what he used to be, maybe, as opposed to what he is now. I always see him as a family member. And I think he even says he's like family because he reminds me of those family members that you have where you really love them. But when they come into your life, they just cause so much chaos. And they're just such a pain in the ass. But at the well, end like, of the day, like North, still like North Korea, like North Korea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like my father-in-law. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's what I'm saying. There's an attachment to the two of them. And I don't know if it's a reminder to Sam of, of what he used to be or or even there's a possibility they could have been partners, mm-hmm. you know, that they, they could have ran together and that Sam just went, OK, you go your way and I'm going mine. And that's it. It's my birthday. Are you going to sing happy birthday to me? I want you to sing happy birthday to me. I sort of like the... Um... I don't know if, it, if it's a contrast, but, you know, Professor Hess, he looks professorial, he has the bow tie, and he doesn't look like the traditional sort of villain for a Western for a piece like this. But you've got all the macho characters like Sam Curtis and the Blueberry Pirate sort of running scared from him. But he seems to be the only character in the entire universe with a ray gun. He's the only guy there who can disintegrate anyone else. You know, the Blueberry Pirate and Sam Curtis and no one else who they come into contact with has any means of countering him of fighting him and that there's this scene in the loo where professor hess confronts the blueberry pirate and says uh, what did he say about me uh, are you going to sing me happy birthday and he gets completely unhinged and then shoots the blueberry pirate and that's the first time we see that his gun it's it turns everything to sand he disintegrates him but he doesn't yeah. seem to me like the traditional western type of villain i like the fact that there's all throughout this film there's subversion of your expectations it's yes here we're going to show you things that look like a traditional western there's a saloon there's the silver miners but professor hess doesn't look like what you'd expect the western villain to look like right. and there's also the thing with eddie the bartender at the series mm-hmm. crossroads bar he comes out like initially as a bit of a nebbish but when he's on stage singing that great song love smiles with yeah. a very punky band
sounds like that. He, he sounded a bit like Joe Biafra with the Dead Kennedys. But also, I don't know about you guys, but he reminded me in his looks and mannerisms, he reminded me of the actor James Karen. Oh, yes, yes, I was trying to think. Yeah, he looks a little... Yes, actually, I completely get it. looks that. a little bit like James Karen in Return of the Living Dead, but he sounds, to me, like really dead Kennedys, like Jello Biafra. But going back to, like, Professor Hess for a second with his ray gun, everybody in the whole film is trying to keep their shit together, right? Everybody's trying to keep their kind of uh, wig on straight, and they've got this sexual tension going on. And they've got to maintain themselves. But with Professor Hess, he's the only guy who really is just unbridled. You know, he's the guy who goes off and blows his proverbial load, so to speak. And I think it's funny how he can just kind of zap everybody, you know, and just go off and and do what he wants to do because he has no control of his hose, so to speak. He just does what he wants to do. He's like the spoiled child. Right. He shoots his load and then everyone's just like gone, you know, like, you know, it's like everything that they had, their tension and all that is just evaporated in the dust Mm. because everybody he goes after, it just seems that they're all just these kind of boiling pots of sexual tension, right? Where... He can go around and let it go where nobody else can really let, let it go. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. It's just, <laughs> I think you might be, Tim. <laughs> no, it, it's, just, it's just funny the way I... This, I it's can see funny that. when you see it, though, because he's the only one who has the gun, like you say, and he's the only one that can shoot it, right? Where everybody else wants to shoot, and they're all just like... Argh. And they're fearful of him because they know what he can do because he has that ability where I think a lot of the other characters they're kind of you know they don't have that ability so i'd be interested to see how you maybe link that metaphor for sexual tension to professor hess's personal code of ethics so he says i want to kill you but i won't kill you if i haven't forgiven you if you've done me wrong then we have unresolved issues i can't kill you but if i have nothing against you then i can kill you easily can you make the link between sexual tension and his personal code of ethics if there's no attachment it's no problem Uh, Okay, so he's the one-night stander. Uh Pretty much. But the thing is, if he's got issues with people, it's just kind of like, "Eh," you know, no, 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 no. You know, he can't get over it, right? It's kind of like relationships, you know. He can just go around and just do whatever he wants to do. Like like you say, the one-night stander, you know. But I think there's just something about that, though, that just always got me how they're all sitting there just bubbling away and they're all tense. You know, like, for example, when they're in the bathroom and he's with the Blueberry Pirate and Blueberry Pirate says, don't touch me. And he says, I can touch you anytime I want. And he's like, no, don't touch me. Don't touch me, man. I'm getting too excited. Or he's just like, it's like, don't, you know, like he hasn't even had anybody touch him. And it's too much for him just to have, you know, I mean, of course, it's disturbing having anybody touch your face. But it's just, I thought it was just kind of like full on, like, you know, the, the, the idea of just a human touch is it's just too much to set somebody off. What did your father teach you? What did your father teach you? What did your father teach you? What did... My father taught me to kill the sunflower. Congratulations, Mr. Curtis. You are now awake. Two hours to Jupiter. I want to talk a little bit about the use of music and songs in the film. And, you know, I've already gone and stated that I'm completely against this whole stupid notion about, oh, it's a musical, it makes no sense. But I think that in a way, because this is a musical, and certainly not necessarily always in the traditional sense, that it works even better. So the scene after Professor Hess has gone and obliterated the miners on Jupiter, well, he sees all these piles of sand. Yeah, I love that. He says, right, time to have a party. Let's have a party. 
I think we'll have a party now. Let's have a party. It's great when you get started out. We'll throw our hands up and shout party. We'll throw our heads back and say party, party, party. Oh, won't you come and join our party? Let's have a party. I think we'll have a party now. Let's have a party. It's great when you get started out. We'll throw our hands up and shout party. We'll throw our heads back and say party, party, party. I want to have a yeah. party. His whole mission of the film is he wants people to celebrate. It's my birthday. And he kicks over these piles of sand like a child would at, uh, at his own birthday party. And then he curls over in the fetal position and throws a temper tantrum at the end of it. And I can't see how that would have worked without it being a song. And yet it perfectly shows his character. We're getting a bigger insight. I mean, we're already going to realize that this guy's a psychopath. But right. this scene shows us, no, in fact, he's a spoiled child. He never had, maybe, we don't about his background we don't know his father figure we don't know how he's led his life to this point and doing it through song we learn something about his character and it, it conveys it better than i think any dialogue could have so I, I just wanted to sort of take it around the table uh we'll start with you mike are there any moments in the film where you think that the song works as a way of explaining what you know, better than dialogue could have or anything else that you think works particularly well about the music in this film Gosh, there's there's no part of this movie where I don't think the music works. Uh, the the moment that made me fall in love with this movie was the whole "Hey Boy" song in the bathroom. <laughs> hey boy, hey boy, I got a message for you about a thing called love and the stars above and a little white dove since pushed her to show. When that came on, is just because we've seen just very little music. We've just had the spacewalk across the surface of series, and it's this older uh, Billy Mayer show song that they kind of revamped for the movie, and it works very well, this whole bouncy, bouncy kind of thing that he's doing. And you still hear, like, okay, yeah, whatever. There's no lyrics, nothing going on. But then when Hey Boy starts and you have these two old guys, they always remind me of, like, escapees from a Coen Brothers film. I was and about to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right? They, they totally yeah. have walked old out brother. of that universe. Oh, brother. Yeah. Oh, man. And just that they are kind of delivering this message to Sam in the bathroom with this and with the dancing. The record player. I, yeah. I felt that's where I fell in love with the movie and I've never looked back yeah the fact that he's uh, he's taking a crap as well so he can't even see them dancing they're just going right. through this this kind of ritual to tell him it's uh, yeah I, my kind of jaw hit the floor at that point it's like what is this this is amazing <laughs> and at the same time there's this aggression too where he's kicking the door and he's yeah, like yeah. you know they're dancing and kicking the door and dancing and kicking the door and it's just like come on out you I found myself oh. really frightened in a way thinking how is this going to end what is going to happen <laughs> well I thought I, I and it also it going to get violent at some point but it kind of doesn't have any of you guys ever seen a film called Calvair 
Is that the Gelt French Gelt. one? Yeah, the French one. Have you uh, seen that, Mike? I don't think so. What is that? It's uh, Fabrice Duels. It was the film where the guy, he basically plays like an entertainer for the elderly, and he goes into this little village, this rural village in France, and it's all men. And he goes into the bar, and then in the bar, all these guys are hopping like penguins, and they're all like these in, inbreded French farmers, and they're all hopping around in this bar doing this really weird dance. And it's just totally reminded me of uh, Hey Boy, because at the same time, it's like more, it's like you said, you're kind of frightened because you're wondering how this is going to end. It's that kind of just people are not supposed to do, Yeah, disconcerting. Yeah. Like, you know, you're not supposed to do that kind of thing. I read uh, an interview with Corey Maccabee, and he said that the inspiration for that scene very frighteningly was based on something that happened to him he was working i think in sears department store and you know he was in the loo and the the stall he was in didn't have a door so there was some guy who'd come into the loo was washing his hands and just while washing his hands just kept looking at him until Corey went maccabee went and said to him look hey what are you doing fuck off but the guy never broke out into song and dance so that's purely <laughs> Corey maccabee's own imagination but just the fact that something happened in a toilet <laughs> really I mean, like, You took a frightening situation and you turned it into high art. So other musical highlights, Bernie? Well, the the one that really jumps to mind for me is the one we were just discussing, the Hey Boy bathroom scene. But I mean, again, as we were saying, because it's the first thing like that in the film, the first just outlandish musical scene, it's it's just a real slap around the face because you just you don't know what you're seeing. You know, the dance contest, which takes place just after that as well, is pretty spectacular. And the uh, the lady with the glass vagina. to venus that's uh, that's wonderful so um i just want to reiterate what mike says so i mean there, there's no bad music in the film it all works perfectly well yeah um they're all fantastic catchy songs which i would happily listen to taken out of context of the film you know i would buy that lp even if it wasn't anything to do with the film there's yeah. one song that isn't on the soundtrack that i kind of wish there was it's the rio yeti song oh wow <laughs> i'm gonna have to look into this I love that stupid song when when they're just singing at each other. Uh oh, have I said something I should not have? Uh, no, no. no. <laughs> Don't you fear the Yetis in Rio? No. No. No! 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 Whenever anybody talks about South America, I always go, South America is where I'm going to (laughs) go. One thing I was going to say about the music in this film 
is unlike, say, other contemporary musicals, and you know, including films that we've discussed on this show before, like Phantom of the Paradise or Little Shop of Horrors, or for that matter, um, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. The music in those films all seem to say, right, well, we're paying tribute to an era. So, you know, Little Shop of Horrors, they got their doo-wop songs, and in Phantom of the Paradise, it seems to go, yeah, there's, uh, there's doo-wop and there's soul, and there's all these other musical styles that they're trying to sort of pay tribute in the movie to an older era. And this film, for the most part, seems to be saying, no, we're making this film in 2001. We're going to sound contemporary. They're not trying to do musical pastiche. And I'm not saying that the songs in those other films don't work. I adore everything about Phantom of the Paradise yeah. and, and Little Shop of Horrors and, and all the songs in Rocky Horror. I, I love them all. But I just appreciate the fact that in this contemporary rock musical, the songs, as you've gone and said there, Bernie, they work completely well outside of the context of the film. And that's because the Billy Nayer show wasn't trying to make songs for a film. They're trying to make songs that would work within the context of the film. And I, I just really appreciate what uh, Corey almost, and the Billy Nayer show did there. It almost feels like the, the film could be secondary to the songs. It's almost like they had the songs first and they built the film around that. Right, right. You, you could kind of see it working that way. And uh, yeah. I would also say about their sound, they didn't sound particularly contemporary for 2001 because I think they've got quite a unique sound that you can see traces of other bands in. It's got a, a little bit of an 80s rockabilly kind of vibe to it and maybe a bit of a twangy surfy kind of vibe yeah. i don't think that ever really went out of style i mean it didn't sound to me to be like a pastiche of 80s no it, or, it didn't no, no, out of right. style, but it wasn't always well, it kind of wasn't in style in the first place if that makes sense it's yeah. this weird mishmash of stuff which just sounds like the billy nayo show so right. if they put out an album now that mm. sounded exactly like the soundtrack to this, it, it probably would. It would still make complete sense they're, because they're they kind of like a band like uh, to compare like Oingo Boingo. Yeah, not necessarily in how they sound, but no, not in how they sound. But I mean, in yeah. the sense that what the music they played was just kind of it was it was always the way that that, that sounded. Yeah, the film creates its own universe, and their music creates its own universe. Yeah. I guess you could say as well, doesn't yeah. it? At the Billy Nayer show before American Astronaut, they had a movie called The Ketchup and Mustard Man. And I saw that at the Chicago Underground Film Festival years ago. And that's a real litmus test film, by the way, because I saw it with two people. One of them loved it. One of them hated it. I loved it as well. And the person that hated it still brings it up, like, how dare you made me watch that movie? <laughs> but that's basically... Maccabee sitting in a chair with this big paper mache head and paper mache hand and the billionaire group behind him and just kind of telling stories and then breaking out into song throughout this whole thing. And he kind of ties the stories together as he's going through. Like at one point he's like, this happened to this character, this happened to this character. And he just goes through all this stuff. And it's like kind of like the proto American astronaut where it's just like, do the song service the story? Is there a story to this at all? Not necessarily, but there kind of is. And the songs are fantastic. And yeah, they kind of belong to their own thing. Yeah. I just want to bring up one more thing about the music. You already alluded to this piece, Mike. The music during the scene where Samuel Curtis is walking from the spaceship through to the series Crossroads Bar.
that whole scene, uh, the music at that moment was, for me, the Blue Danube of this film. So... I don't know whether he intended to make that a Kubrickian moment, but the whole movement, the, the lengthy walk between the ship to the bar reminded me of 2001. The contrast of the black night sky taking up three quarters of the screen to maybe yeah. just a little quarter yeah. of him walking in profile between spots seemed very 2001. The camera following him from behind initially as he leaves, that's a very Kubrickian thing to sort of go down a path and follow someone from behind. He's done it in The Shining, done it in Paths of Glory, probably every other film that he did, I can't quite recall. I don't know whether he intended to pay tribute to Stanley Kubrick at that moment, but it just that really strongly came to my mind. And I loved that piece of music. I thought, wow, that's this film's Blue Danube. And it just yeah, completely worked in that context. I just, I love it. It's exciting. He never felt that he had to go, oh, I'll, I'll do something more traditionally orchestral or even something on a piano. No, this is my band. This is what we do. And the music is exciting. And I just find everything about this film exciting. It's And he's done it his way. He's told the story his way. And he's he's a multimedia guy. I mean, he's like a, I guess, what Frank Sanapaggio would call a real renaissance man. You know, he's, he, he understands the music. He understands the visuals. He understands the storytelling. I don't know, Mike, has he written a book? You know, he has, uh, I believe it was a comic book called Rabbit. I'm trying to remember what, what it was because I, I backed it years ago on either Kickstarter or Indiegogo or something, and I don't remember what became of it. But yeah, Corey, is he's got his fingers in a lot of different pies. And one of the weirdest things, just as a complete aside, I met him the, the night that they showed uh, American Astronaut at the Maryland Film Festival. Mm. Met him, hung out with him a little bit in the lobby, talked with him for a little bit. And then I saw him again like two years later at the Maryland Film Festival, and he walked into like the, the, the room where they keep, you know, the, the, the basically the green room, and he sees me, he's just like, hey, Mike, how's it going? After two years, this guy remembered me after all this time, and just like, what the? So he seems like one of these guys that just has one of these type of minds where he can remember people, places, names, all these kind of things, and I'm sure that helps him with his art, because he, yeah, he's into all this stuff. He used to send out, I got on the mailing list after Ketchup and Mustard Man, and and he would send out hand-painted postcards, each one individually hand-painted to all the people that were on his mailing list. Wow. He just yeah. sounds like a complete mensch. What a, what a lovely yes. guy. So I just want to quickly divert to the film that he made. Was it maybe seven or eight years later? I've already mentioned it. Stingray Sam. Stingray Sam is not a hero. But he does do the things that folks don't do. That need to be done He's got bravery inside Did you like the film? Did I like Stingray Sam? Yes, I love Stingray Sam. Did you know that Josh Taylor, the guy who was um, the Blueberry Pirate, also the producer of American Astronaut, he's the one that plays Fredward. He's completely... Oh, I didn't, I didn't pick that up, no. Yeah, completely different look to him. He almost looks like a Terry Gilliam when he does uh, Conrad Poons or something in uh, when he's playing Fredward, and he looks so different as the Blueberry Pirate. 
But Stingray Sam, there are chapters that I like more than other chapters. And I'll tell you that that Pirate's Daughter uh, song just gets stuck in my head to like nobody's business. It's lovely. With Stingray Sam, I almost always just go right to Fredward and then also the Stingray Sam song itself those two sections are probably my absolute favorites but overall i still really like that and i like the way that that story is put together especially with the what will happen next and the last time on stingray sam i actually appreciate when i kind of watch them all together as one movie having those breaks inside of there yep tim had you seen stingray sam oh a long time ago Hmm. long long time ago but um yeah, I like the, like Mike was saying, you know, like the breaks in between and the fact that it just seems to me like, you know, one cohesive universe. It just seems like, you know, it just seems all in one. Mm-hmm. I like the style of all of it and the way that they incorporate again, you know, music into it. It's just seamless. Bernie, was this one that you were able to um, come across? It no, again, something I've never heard of. So um, I'm going to have to uh, do a bit of research and dig up a copy of this. Yeah, it's a lot of. I mean, hearing this about Stingray Sam makes me more keen to find out about Corey Maccabee because I, I kind of like artists and creative people who they kind of go over the same themes. And they have a similar aesthetic in whatever they do. They keep approaching it maybe from a slightly different angle and, and so on. I always find that interesting with an artist. And mm-hmm. from what you guys are saying, it's, it's fairly obvious that, you know, Corey Maccabee seems to work that way. So I'm definitely going to have to uh, do some more exploring. Mike, do you know if he's got anything new on the boil? He's been doing a lot of seminar work. I keep up with him via his mailing list. But as far as I know, other than, what's the name of the one that you mentioned? Uh, Cook and uh, Thief? Uh, no. Um, or crazy and thief crazy and thief other than that one i don't think he's put out any new film projects which is a shame because he can do film projects like nobody's business though there are more billionaire albums out there that they made after the stingray sam soundtrack now, I, I, have think a ton of albums. Involved, I think he's involved in a new film right now because i just saw something about him at sundance okay and, and i think he's a part of an ensemble piece in a film I, i'm gonna have to dig more into that but i but i just saw something with the, with the last couple of weeks of him being at sundance so I think something had come out. You aren't, haven't ever seen Todd Rohal, who has done a ton of other stuff. Oh, Guatemalan Handshake is what it's called. He plays a very bit part in the Guatemalan Handshake, which stars Will Oldham. And it's Why? a very, very bizarre little film. And Todd Rohal is just a fantastic artist. He kind of like moved into some weird territory, like made a Johnny Knoxville movie, but he still has a lot of art roots in there. But yeah, definitely check out the Guatemalan handshake you get to see a little short appearance by cory mcabee in that one right something i wanted to bring up what we were talking about you know going back to american astronaut where the dude gets up on stage before the dance contest and he's doing oh my god comedy bit now (laughs) is it is it just me or did you guys not get a a whole neil hamburger thing off that dude yeah i can totally see that yeah yeah purely in the fact that he's telling a terrible joke which isn't funny Right. Not not so much his mannerisms or anything. No, but no, yeah, no, no, yeah. no. But just yeah. the whole approach. I mean, just Absolutely. the whole shaggy dog story where these guys and these guys are busting up, but you know how bad it is. And yeah, I thought that was they, brilliant. They so. genuinely seem to be laughing at the parts that aren't funny, don't they? Right. 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 Oh yeah. yeah. The more right. violent it gets, the funnier it is. <laughs> right. Five years later, Mr. Stevenson asked another boy about his same age at that time if he would like a Hertz donut. When the boy said yes. Mr. Stevenson stabbed him over and over again in his eye and his cheek 
with a pencil <laughs> saying Hertz Donut. But you wonder if the end is it would be a genuinely funny line in their universe. You said, well, I've never understood this joke. But then I've never been to Earth. Yeah. Sort of wonder whether that would work in their universe. It sounds like Take a my, traditionally funny line. Take my wife, please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that actor is just amazing. And the guy that plays Lee Valensky from Jupiter, mm. I was so distracted when I went to see Steven Spielberg's film Lincoln because he's in Lincoln. And I <laughs> just kept focusing. He's been in a ton of stuff, Peter McRobbie. But I just kept focusing on him. He was even in Bridge of Spr- Spies. He was in The Visit. He was in Brokeback Mountain. He's, been, he's still in stuff like Juggernaut just last year. So he's in tons of stuff. Daredevil, he had a recurring role but whatever it was when i saw him in lincoln i guess because he kind of is doing the same affectations with his voice and sexual intercourse an act in which we are all a stranger but which upon my return i will describe to you in great Detail. And uh-huh. so I just kept thinking of him saying, like, you know, and I will describe it in great detail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The other thing I was going to say, too, was in the bar, there's a scene initially where, you know, Sam walks in and they hands the guy his helmet and everything. And there's that big giant guy. Yes. Yeah. And I, I swear I've seen him somewhere before and I really couldn't figure out where. Yeah, I, I recognized him as well. I'm not sure where from, but I, I know initially I said before that I hate the comparisons to Lynch. But it almost seemed like he, he seemed like somebody at a Twin Peaks. You know, yeah, like, I'm just it, uh, checking him out on IMDb now. He's in uh, 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 Shutter Island. Okay. He's in, he's in 12 Monkeys. Yeah. He's in The Long Kiss Goodnight. A lot of TV stuff as well. The American Astronaut he's in. Oh, God, he was... Oh, I know where I recognize him from. He was the garbage man on The Adventures of Pete and Pete. Oh, okay. <laughs> Does that ring any bells with anyone? No, no, no. But I, I would what? say from Shutter Island for me, but... That's I've totally seen Longest oh, Goodnight and 12 Monkeys. I don't know how many times I never picked up that he was in it. So now I have to go back and <laughs> double-check that. Wow. Mike, surely and, you're aware of uh, The Adventures of Pete and Pete. I'm aware of the show, but I can't say I've watched it. That, that is, that's exactly where I recognize him from. That is crazy. Wow. Huh. That's fantastic. I love when he gets up and does his dance and everyone just starts booing him. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Right. So I'm, dejected, isn't he? And he just shuffles yes. off. Yeah. I, I love Eddie's own particular dance, like after he sort of finishes singing. Oh, the, 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 what he, he does like a combination of karate moves and <laughs> twirling an imaginary rope. And I don't know what he was thinking at the time, but that's, so, so that's, that's some of the most impressive yeah. choreography I've seen in the film, apart from Hey Boy, Hey Boy. You guys know what cargo cults are, right? 
Oh, well, you know, back in the 40s and the 50s, like in the South Pacific and even into the 30s, they, they would have these cargo planes that would crash land on Pacific Islands, you know, with the indigenous people there. And they'd never seen a plane before. And all of a sudden they thought it was like a god that fell out of the sky. They'd set up an altar of like the pilot's skeleton in a seat with his hat on and with, you know, with all the radio gear broken in front of them to, to kind of show tribute to the gods in a way to uh, try to get them to come back to bring more delicious foods that were in these mysterious cases, you know, boxes or whatever, you know. But I'm what I'm trying to say is that I think, you know, in a sense, when you said the comedian says, but I've never been to Earth, mm. and you get this idea that there's kind of like a, a dilution of information that comes out across the universe that right. things start at on Earth and then they just basically get more and more and more and more warped and convoluted. And by the time they get to all the other planets, they're completely something that they're not. Right. So when you see the dances and all these things, it's like it makes perfect sense to them because that's all they know. But to anybody from Earth or anybody outside, it would yeah. just kind of be like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> you know, like, but it's like the cargo cult thing, like I'm saying. you know, It's like to the people that are there within their frame of reference you know this is what they think it is you know and so that's what they're going to go with all of them are kind of trapped in their own kind of frames of reference you know on venus and then the ladies you know on their planet and then when people come together not that i'm saying i have sex on the mind but it goes back to the whole sexuality thing where you know they're all isolated you know you got your boys and your girls isolated and then when they come together it's just kind of like oh well i think this is how i'm supposed to act and oh i think this is how i'm supposed to act there's all that to it and yeah Samuel Curtis knows completely how he's supposed to act because he moves around the universe. So when he comes, yeah, to, the, he, he comes to visit the southern he, belt on Earth. Venus, yeah. but also he moves around. Yes, he's. we don't know how long it's been since he's been on Earth, but when he visits those southern belts, he turns on the snake oil salesman charm and you know, right. hello ladies and he sings and he knows he's got to smooth talk them to get them to give up their dead stud so he can give them a new real life stud and he knows yeah. it's going to take a little bit of moving over but yeah absolutely they're living in their universe but he still thinks right but you know what I smooth talk them doesn't matter whether they're ladies on Venus or ladies on Earth I can do my charm and they'll fall for it so actually, right. that's another interesting thing is about how the, the look of the film the only time we see an outside shot or something that's not on a set is during that scene the final scene of the film in venus we get natural light we get the forest but all the rest of it's all done on a set just wondering whether there was some specific intention that cory maccabee had to say right but this we absolutely have to have natural light as opposed to the darkness that the men are living in throughout the rest of the universe then again i'm reading too much <laughs> smell your hand i will kill him You have every reason to kill him. Probably final thoughts go around the table. Final thing that you want to mention that we haven't already done so. Start with you, Mike. Well, yeah, I. if you haven't seen this movie, obviously, highly recommend it. If you haven't seen Ketchup and Mustard Man or uh, Stingray Sam, also highly recommended. And yeah, just pick up the soundtracks as well because they are stunning. And it's a, a feast to the senses. 
Is there another Billy Nair show album that you'd recommend? Do you have any uh, any others besides the soundtrack to this film? Well, the soundtrack for this soundtrack for Ketchup and Mustard Man is one that I almost wore out the vinyl to wow. it. Wow. And it, that was when it was really tough to find albums. This was pre or like right around the beginning of popular internet kind of thing. I remember hearing that the album was at a record store in Chicago called Quaker Goes Deaf and emailing this place and having to special order from Chicago this album. So now it's just like pretty amazing when you go out and, oh, sure, buy the whole album on MP3 from Amazon. And it's so easy <laughs> when it used to be such a slog to get this stuff. So the art is available, guys. Just uh, it's waiting for you to pick it up. I very much enjoyed this. There were some parts that worked better for me than others. I think certainly all the set pieces that we've been talking about are tremendous. But some of the uh, almost kind of like, you know, the, the parts in between where um, they're just kind of traveling in the ship or what have you, some of that felt a little bit forced and overlong to me. Maybe, though, as sort of Tim was alluding to at the start, as a first time viewing, I don't know, maybe it was all just a bit much to take in or something. I think... After a few more viewings, as, as Tim said, I might kind of settle into it a little bit more. But I am certainly keen to go back and give it another viewing and investigate more Corey uh, Maccabee. Here's Corey Maccabee, isn't it? Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah, investigate more of, of his stuff because he's a really interesting, sort of charismatic, creative guy. So thanks for suggesting this, Mike, because um, you've given me a whole new universe to explore, I guess. So thank you. <laughs> Cheers. I'm kind of of the the belief that Mike is like when the ketchup and mustard man. I think this is a real litmus test. This film and you can drop it on people you know that'll appreciate it, but then again, you could also drop it on people they're going to hate you for showing them this. Mm. There's, I think, there's some people that won't get this, or, or there's some people that are just going to take this directly at face value and and just say, well, you know, like you said about that podcast, you know, it's just like this. I don't like musicals, and this doesn't work, and blah blah blah. And it's just like, well, have you tried eating Brussels sprouts before you said you didn't like them? It's that kind of thing. It's like give it a go, you know, give it a spin. And I, and I think people are kind of spoiled in this day and age where they expect quote unquote film to be big and brash and you know and to be obvious and all of these things and I mean what Corey McAbee has done is nothing short of a revelation in, in, in taking you know limitations of budget but also taking his vision and taking his uh, his ideas and really making it work within the framework of, of what he, he could do with his budget I mean like he, he really pulled off some things that are just like wow like that's what he meant to do and and that's what he did within it within his uh, his parameters, you know, and, and it's phenomenal because he's created kind of like his own kind of snow globe where you can say that there are elements of other films that you can see in this, but this is entirely a beast of its own. We've reiterated over and over and over that he really has created his own universe in this, which is a rarity. You know, it's a real difficult thing to pull off. You know, it's like you look at dudes like Isaac Asimov or science fiction writers that have written volumes of books to create their own universe. And here's a guy that just comes out with a film and says, okay, this is what he does. And this is what he does. And this is his name. And this is where she lives. And bang, you go along with it. And it's just phenomenal. I completely agree with everything that you said there. I think he's come up with this universe, done it his way. He's subverted expectations, but he's never been completely self-conscious about it. It's just, here's an entertaining story. 
story. And that's the bottom line. It doesn't matter if there are quirks and there's a mashup of you know the Western with the sci-fi with singing in a toilet stall. It doesn't matter. The whole thing for him, bottom line, was that it still had to be entertaining, but he's not taking the obvious route. And yet, I don't think that you have to recommend this film to a particular type of film goer. There are just people like that podcast, which I gave five minutes to, that are basically sort of going to judge things on the surface. So they've probably gone in thinking, oh, I've heard this is a weird film. As long as you're willing to say, right, I'll give this a watch and just present it to me. I don't think you need to be a um, even a particularly adventurous film goer to really get something out of this. You can you can enjoy it on a, on a surface level. You can enjoy something more out of it in another way. But just you go in as a blank slate and be prepared to be entertained because Corey McAbee does that in a sort of unique way and yet he's still telling, I think, a fairly straightforward narrative. I just want to reiterate what Bernie said, Mike, thank you so much for recommending this one because you know I didn't see it in the cinema and I don't know if I would have gotten around to seeing it. So I'm glad that this film is definitely a part of my life now. So thanks very much for that. When I get to Venus, can I get a dog? Dogs can't live on Venus. When they roll on their backs, the pressure twists their guts up and kills them. So that ends our discussion, I think, on The American Astronaut. Before we go talking about what we're going to do next month, just a huge thanks once again to you, Mike, for uh, joining us on the show. What's coming up in the next couple of weeks on uh, the projection booth? Um, Well, I think up next is going to be The Maltese Falcon and L.A. Confidential. Kind of shifted my Noir-vember to uh, Noir-buary, which doesn't work at all. So, yeah, that should be fun to talk about. Though now I have a big old uh, elephant in the room with Kevin Spacey. So, thanks a lot. Well, that'll just have to be part of the conversation, evidently. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to also sort of point out to uh, the listeners if you haven't listened to the projection booth, you should definitely go back through the archives. And I I got a lot of joy in the last month or so when you put out your episode of A Better Tomorrow. Oh, good. Your discussion and uh, the the people who'd gone and written the books and knew absolutely so much about about the history of Hong Kong cinema and the history of Hong Kong itself and how that translated to what was going on in the movie. I mean, sorry to piss in your pocket, but I, I mean, I love the show anyway, but that episode, that was a film that really meant a lot to me. And I, I remember we were having this uh, conversation typed through uh, Facebook communicator. And I just loved how the fact that we both at the same time, you said, oh, we're talking about a better tomorrow too. And we both at the same time said, you like my rice? This fucking fried rice! Uh, <laughs> that, that iconic moment and i really had, had a lot of fun with that episode so yeah please listeners out there search for the projection booth if you want to get some fantastic film discussion you really ought to be listening to this show so mike it's just an honor and a thrill that you come and join us here in the see here booth as it were and we look forward to uh, seeing what else we can bring you back for in another music related film did you guys like this better than Oz, I hope? I love Oz. Don't go, <laughs> hang, don't go hanging shit on Oz. That's out of my backyard. I have no objectivity. Uh, <laughs> well, guys, thank you so much for having me back. I'm, I'm glad that you did. This is always fun talking with you. Mm. Thanks a lot, Mike. We really appreciate yeah. it. Anytime, uh, Mike. Come back whenever you like. So let's talk about next month's episode. And I've picked two films for next month, but we're going to do sort of a bit of a mashup. We're not going to discuss them separately. This is something I've sort of been thinking about for a while. The two films, 
films. One's called Desperate Man Blues, directed by a fellow called Edward Gillian. And he's not made anything else. At least I looked on IMDb. He's not made any films before or since. He's a little bit hard to track down. I would like to have uh, done an interview with him to discuss about this. But Desperate Man Blues is about an American record collector, rather famous one called Joe Bussett. And he's gone and collected you know, hundreds of thousands of 78 records from the 30s and 40s. And he knows every single record in his collection. And he can tell you a story about every record in his collection. And I want to contrast that with a film by a man called Alan Zweig, a film called Vinyl. And basically, we've got one film that's praising the efforts of a record collector and how he's been an archivist and how he's kept these records and these songs in public consciousness, sort of like an Alan Lomax. And then you get a film like Vinyl by Alan Zweig, who is basically casting an aspersion on people who obsessively collect records with no more intent than to sort of have every barcode and you know five different versions of this particular record. And it's just collection for collection's sake. So I want to have a, a contrasting discussion about record collectors as archivists versus record collectors just for its own sake. One that looks favorably and one that looks not very favorably on them. I think it'll be a fantastic discussion. I look forward to your thoughts on these films, gents. There's uh, a fine line between collecting and mental illness, as we will find out next month. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and um, yeah. just on, on the spur of it, I've gone and invited a guest to join us, only someone who I've been aware of in the last couple of days over Facebook, a, a fellow called Michael Benton, who I know is a big admirer of the projection booth, Mike. And Michael is a professor in media and humanities, I think in, I'm not sure, can't remember what the university is, but it's somewhere in Kentucky. And he runs what looks like a really, really excellent series of film nights called the Bluegrass Film Society. And I've had a look over at his blog and website, and this gent really, really knows his stuff. He'd been, for some unknown reason, an admirer of our podcast. He said uh, he sent me a note saying, I've been listening to your podcast while I go jogging, and there's some things I agree with, and there's some things I've been shaking my fist at you because you guys got that wrong, and I disagree with you. And um, But I'm keeping on listening because I'm really loving what I'm hearing so I thought well you know I'm, I'm easily flattered I'm easily bought so I said well would you like to join us to discuss these two films he says sounds like a blast so there you go new blood into the see here discussion family looking forward to having Michael Benton on our show to discuss vinyl and desperate man blues housekeeping if you want to join our Facebook group you go facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here if you want to uh, recommend the podcast to other people and want to tell them how to get it either through the usual channels of of iTunes, or you can go to the website see here s w h e a r dot podbean dot com, or you can get it through whatever your podcast catcher of choice may be. You want to send us an email? We'd love that. We'd love our first email, but it'd be great. See here podcast at gmail dot com. I think that covers it all. So until next month, when we discuss vinyl collection, archival or disease, just watch a lot of great films, listen to some great music, and be nice to each other. All the best. Cheers. Hurts, don't it?
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 